Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hey gang, this is Season 4, Episode 29, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name again is Julia Samowski, and I'm the producer of the podcast. While Rick is away, we will continue to dive into our most popular episodes among our listeners. This week, we will bring it back to a question that can cause much debate. Is Harry Potter evil? This episode also explores how various activities can be considered fun for some, while others believe they can be a gateway for evil. Which view is correct? So let's join Rick and our very good friend Stephanie Hillberry as they discuss the question, is Harry Potter evil? Enjoy! Today we have Steph Hilbury uh, join me. He, she helps frame these podcast episodes with me, and she's joining us again. She's, I, I think the the surface reason Steph's joining us today is, weren't you like a vampire slayer when you were in high school? <laughs> I was not. Oh, you were, you were not? No. Oh, I've been misinformed. <laughs> <laughs> no, rumors are taken way out of context. Yeah, so uh, so just for the record, you were not a vampire slayer in any previous, okay, all right. Well, Steph has joined us today. We're going to talk about an important thread from last week's episode. Now, last week's episode was titled what the kind of the whole month is about, How's Your Relationship with Satan? And it was my conversation at the Simply Jesus Gathering with uh, professor of New Testament theology, Conrad Gempf. Um, he is uh, at the London School of Theology. And Jay Pathak, who's a senior pastor of Mile High Vineyard in Denver. And it was a fascinating conversation because these two men are kind of from very different backgrounds, and they had very different vantage points to look at this whole question of Satan and the demonic and what our role in it is today. So we had this vigorous conversation about what you might call the ground battle against evil in the world. Jay Pathak made the case that really we have our role to play in this, and it's not a grandiose role, it's a very practical, everyday role. The grandiose role is really something Jesus has already done and doing, and so he called it the ground battle, and um, that that's what we're going to uh, pursue. And when we think about what this is, it's basically how do we assess and then enter into the realm of the unseen world that Jesus talks so much about? And toward the end of that uh, of the episode last week, I raised the issue of risk with Conrad and Jay, specifically what risks um, are, are we... Um, exposing ourselves to when we engage in what you might call spiritual warfare, or we recognize the, the reality of demonic presence, or we do something about it, and what risks do we have in participating in things that you might say open the door to some sort of dark spiritual forces or demonic presences? And uh, that's what we're going to pursue today. I mean, are we supposed to live our lives in fear of the opening of doors left and right, and things that, we, that we're involved in that could actually invite demonic influence in our life, how at risk are we uh, about that, and what's our posture toward all this stuff in our everyday life? So another way of saying it is, in our everyday life, are we at risk of getting sort of dirty 
from association with demonic or dark spiritual forces in our life. Is that what Jesus is trying to tell us? Is that what the Bible is trying to model? And as Steph and I were talking about this, uh, I think we have a fantastic case study from her own life. She uh, participates in a yoga class and has for a long time. You, could I? Could we call you a yoga enthusiast? Mm, a yoga practicer? Okay. Enthusiast, I, I don't know. I'm enthusiastic okay. about fitness, and yoga is a great way to stretch. So so you are neither a vampire slayer or a <laughs> yoga enthusiast. <laughs> I would what... say that is also accurate. Okay. Yes. But, you, but you've been participating in a yoga class for a long time, and yoga is, I'd say, mildly controversial within mm-hmm. Christian circles because so, yeah. it has some Eastern yep. religious connotations, and some people have yep. kind of branded it as a, uh, an open door to some mm-hmm. of these dark forces, and you should never do it. So yeah. why don't you tell your story of sure. participating in this and some of the questions that surround that? So this came up recently um, in a timely way for our series. I was talking about some—I've been having a few kind of just muscle tightness problems, um, and I was asking for prayer for that with one of my best friends. And um, she— had been praying for me and she reached out and said, Hey, I think that you should pray about yoga. Um, she said, I, I just feel leery about it. Um, she wasn't saying, I feel like God's saying that you shouldn't do it, but she was just saying, I feel leery about it. She has people in her life who are kind of on the spectrum, some who participate in yoga and then others who really, again, Rick, to your point, who feel like Christians really should avoid yoga. Yoga is a practice that was developed within the context of Hindu religion, and it is it definitely has a strong spiritual heritage in that religion. And so I think that's where a lot of the uh, concern, I think, comes from within the Christian community is this particular type of fitness has spiritual roots that are not Christian. And so there's this question of, can you participate in something like that and spiritually, are you coming into agreement with the these kind of Hindu roots of the yoga practice? And it is true for sure that there are a lot of yoga practitioners who some of them are practicing Hindus. I would, I would venture to say people in India, for instance, who practice yoga are practicing Hindu. And I, I'm guessing they probably coordinate those two things together in a holistic way. A lot of people in the U.S. practice yoga, and I would say not necessarily specifically Hindu, but more of this kind of Eastern, New Age sort of mysticism. And that, of course, is this kind of amorphous uh, philosophy that's articulated by a lot of people in our culture today. There's not any set principles about it, but we encounter it all the time through a whole variety of things. Meditation, mm-hmm. um, functional wellness can sometimes dip into it. Mind- Ask- mindfulness. Mindfulness. Um, if you've ever gone to maybe a, a holistic wellness person, mm. uh, like Reiki or energy, or I mean, it crystals, mm-hmm. Himalayan sea salt. I mean, it. it's got all these Excuse me, excuse me. Himalayan sea salt. <laughs> Himalayan sea salt. Yes. Wait a minute. So, Aren't the Himalayans mount, like mountains? 
How there, can you have sea there's salt? There's a salt on a that comes from the Himalayans, and they you can um, purchase. Well, you can. I mean, it's a culinary thing. You can cook with it, but also you can purchase these lamps that are made out of it, and they kind of so, so have they, potentially. You know, they can ionize the room, or maybe for some people, they have spiritual qualities that are kind of purifying a space. Is that know. because they're under the influence of the Himalayan Yeti? How does no, that Rick. work exactly? No, Rick. No. Clearly, no. you are not. Clearly, in this another bubble. rumor that I should never <laughs> listen to. <laughs> so all of this to say, there's definitely a um, a growing, and in fact, it's a very popular, extremely lucrative industry that kind of circulates around this sort of Eastern spirituality. Yoga is a part of it. And the question, the umbrella question here is, of course, that when we do these things, we might be sort of opening the door mm-hmm. or entering into a space where demonic presences are. Mm-hmm whatever you would want to call those things, uh, the other gods. In the Old Testament, as Conrad Gimp said in our last episode, there are lots of mentions of false gods in, in Egyptian culture and other cultures, Babylonian culture, and maybe the idea that the, these cultures have false gods is, in the New Testament, those are branded demonic forces. Mm-hmm. So whatever you call them, these practices, these everyday kinds of things, these things that seem a little bit in the gap, in the fuzzy zone of what is that spiritual practice, the concern is that we're exposing ourselves perhaps to spiritual forces that will that intend to destroy us, right. and they're deceptive. And so what, can, what looks good might not be good because they're trying to deceive us. I thought it'd be interesting to just read a little something from the original introduction to the Screwtape Letters by... C.S. Lewis, we're going to come back to your story, because I think uh, it, it does—it's like the tip of the iceberg for this whole conversation, but it's good to pause for a second and kind of uh, pick C.S. Lewis's brain about why he wrote the, the Screwtape Letters and what he was thinking about these demonic presences and these dark spiritual forces when he wrote this classic book of a, a sort of a veteran demon instructing his mentee, a younger demon, on how to attempt and ultimately destroy that younger demon's target. Um, So the whole book is these letters back and forth between the older demon and the younger demon about the challenges facing the younger demon and trying to tempt this man, his target, into destruction. So in his original introduction to the Screwtape Letters, uh, Lewis is uh, trying to explain himself, basically, because he's a a respected scholar writing a book about demons. (laughs) And so he's trying to make his case for why this is an important thing to do. Um, and so uh, he, he, here I'm going to read just a short portion of his original introduction. He says, Bad angels, like bad men, are entirely practical. They have two motives. The first is fear of punishment, for as totalitarian countries have their camps for torture, so my hell contains deeper hells, its houses of correction. Their second motive is a kind of hunger. I feign that devils can, in a spiritual sense, eat one another, and us. Even in human life, we have seen the passion to dominate, almost to digest one's fellow, to make his whole intellectual and emotional life merely an extension of one's own, to hate one's hatreds and resent one's grievances and indulge one's egoism through him as well as through oneself. His own little store of passion must, of course, be suppressed to make room for ours. If he resists this suppression... He is being very selfish. So here he's talking about the, the fundamental nature of these demonic forces is to digest us, which is, you know, it, it's very reflective of how Jesus 
describes these forces as they've come only for one reason, to kill, steal, and destroy, and they do it through deception. So so you can see why there's a lot of fear and concern mm-hmm. built up around um, participation in things like this. So first, let's talk about, um, as you, Steph, have, mm-hmm. have heard these concerns, you've still continued to participate in yoga class. So what, what goes through your head? What, why, do you, why have you made the choices you have around this? So I, I followed up with my friend's request, and I did pray about it. I went before the Lord and just said, well, what, what do you think? And I do want to say that that, I think, is key when you have people who love you in your life, and they throw something out there that says, hey, I think you should look into this. I think that, that that's a wonderful gift that my friend gave me. It's a wonderful gift we give each other. Um, and so I, it's not the kind of thing I ever want to be defensive about. I do want to, I do want to take it to the Lord and say, hey, you know, I, who, who be it for me to assume that I have everything right right now? I mean, I could be out of line, and this could be your way of gently correcting me. And so anyway, I did. I prayed about it. And what I ended up gravitating toward was 1 Corinthians 8, which we'll read in a bit. But... Um, I felt like it was a little bit of a similar situation to what Paul encountered with the Corinthians, kind of about where's the line? You know, if something had a pagan origin, does there that does that therefore automatically contaminate you? And the the conclusion I came to was no. Yoga is full of postures. P- performing those postures isn't inherently making me um, compliant with paganism. And in fact, I personally experienced through all aspects of my fitness a lot of spiritual connection to the Holy Spirit, yoga included. There are a lot of times when the Holy Spirit will speak with me about something I'm experiencing physically, and he'll draw a parallel to a spiritual truth or an insight into my heart. Um, and this is across the board, and yoga is included in this. So um, I I felt like, based on kind of some of these things that Paul talks about, that the practice of performing postures— for, um, you know, as an aspect of my fitness wasn't necessarily endangering me to becoming exposed to, you know, demonic forces that maybe were connected to it um, when it was originally created and or are connections that people still make when they're actively practicing something like Hinduism. And here you're making this decision and someone else I'm sure yeah. could make the opposite decision. Someone you someone could be listening to us this right now and vehemently disagree with me. Right, and have already made the decision, mm-hmm. oh, because of this, I'm not going to do it. So that opens a whole Pandora's box of, hey, what what is the quote-unquote right way to do this? Right. And here's what we'll explore a bit, a bit later in the podcast today, that the vexing thing that Jesus does over and over in his own modeling and in his own discipling of us in our life, is he almost never gives us what I just said we want, which is a clear cut, here's how you do it in every situation, every time. He just doesn't do that. He doesn't heal people the same way twice. He doesn't pray for people the same way twice. He doesn't engage every person the exact same way. It's quite different how he approaches different people in his life. He is varied like a human being is. And what we're looking for are a set of standards and practices and boundaries that work in every situation, yeah. and all of us, if we're being obedient, should follow those in mm. directions. And and what we discover in Jesus is that he doesn't give us that out, um, primarily because he wants to be in relationship with us. He doesn't want us to follow rules and regulations, he wants us to follow him. Mm. And that necessarily means 
these kinds of de- these kinds of decisions that you're talking about, where you wrestle it out with him. What is the right faithful thing for me to do? I think uh, what we're going to do, we're going to we were going to read First Corinthians eight a bit later, but I think we're going to do it now since you've raised this issue. I think it's important for us to kind of see what Paul's saying here, and I think I'd like to read this from the Message version. We usually read from the New Living Translation because that's the translation we use in the in the Jesus Centered Bible. Which, by the way, if you don't have a Jesus Centered Bible, we'll put a link to uh, to it on our podcast page here. Uh, I check it out uh, if if you and if you already have one. Uh, it's a fantastic gift to give to somebody. We've heard, uh, I mean, thousands, hundreds, yep. thousands of stories of people whose lives have been transformed just by reading this version of the Bible, which kind of helps focus you on, on the heart of Jesus, no matter where you're reading, uh, because of the extra features we've added to the Bible. So so there's a little plug for the Jesus-centered Bible. If you don't have one, please do go get one. And by the way, a little rabbit trail on top of rabbit trail, the point in everything about this podcast and about everything we're talking about now is not to focus on dark spiritual forces and the demonic. The point of our whole life is to focus on Jesus. Everything springs out of that. So we'll get to that a bit later. But here is um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, read in the message version of the Bible. I just like the way Eugene Peterson takes this kind of complicated, weird portion of Paul's letter to the Corinthians and translates it into... Uh, everyday language. So listen carefully to this, because what Steph is saying, and and it strikes me so profoundly, is that Paul is talking exactly about Steph's situation right now. Should I participate in yoga or not? And are there concerns around my participation or not? And how do you discern what to do relative to these demonic forces? So here's what Paul says. The question keeps coming up regarding meat that has been offered up to an idol— Should you attend meals where such meat is served or not? Or should you go to yoga class or not? We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. (laughs) Isn't that great? We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Now, some people will say quite rightly that idols have no actual existence and that there's nothing to them, and that there's no God other than our one God, and that no matter how many of these so-called gods are named in worship, they still don't add up to anything but a tall story. They say, again, quite rightly, that there's only one God, the Father, and that everything comes from Him, and that He wants us to live for Him. Also, they say that there's only one Master, Jesus the Messiah, and that everything is for His sake, including us. Yes, it's all true. Now, in strict logic, then, nothing happened to the meat when it was offered up to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that. But knowing isn't everything. If it becomes everything, some people end up as know-it-alls who treat others as know-nothings. Real knowledge isn't that insensitive. We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level of understanding in this. Some of you have spent your entire lives eating idol meat and are sure there's something bad in that meat that then becomes something bad inside of you. An imagination and a conscience shaped under those conditions isn't going to change overnight. But fortunately, God doesn't grade us on our diet. We're neither commended when we clean our plate nor reprimanded when we just can't stomach it. But God does care when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leads a fellow believer still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. For instance... Say you flaunt your freedom by going to a banquet thrown in honor of idols, 
or say you show up at the yoga class every week. Same thing. And at this uh, banquet, the main course is meat sacrificed to idols. Isn't there a great danger of someone still struggling over this issue? Someone who looks up to you as, a knowledgeable, as knowledgeable and mature sees you go into that banquet or walk through the yoga door? The danger is that he will become terribly confused, maybe even to the point of getting mixed up himself in what his conscience tells him is wrong. So Christ gave his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because as you say, it doesn't really make any difference. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. And when you hurt your friend, you hurt Christ. A free meal here and there isn't worth it at the cost of even one of these weak ones. So, never go to these idle-tainted meals if there's any chance it'll trip up one of your brothers or sisters. So, you said, Steph, that reading this helped you to wrestle this out after your friend brought all this mm-hmm. up. How did that help you? Well, so I feel like there were, there are two aspects to it. First of all, I think that the freedom that he talks about, the knowledge that he talks about at the beginning, provided clarity for me, which was, you know, a, a posture is a posture. It it's it's not inherently evil, just like the food sacrificed to an idol. It was just food. You know, there wasn't anything particularly demonic about the food itself. Eating the food didn't make you demonic. I mean, this is kind of the point that he's making. Um, and I think that that's sort of the the conclusion. Um, and I say that with a grain of salt because, you know, again, humility means I don't always know everything. But my conclusion is that the posture doesn't inherently connect me to a demonic force. That said, the other portion of the passage, I think, is the part that did convict me. And I'm so thankful to my friend because it caused me to, and continues to cause me to ask, I think, a more valuable question, which is not, does this corrupt me spiritually in terms of demonic influence, but more, does this give me an, uh, am I making decisions just purely for self-interest for my own personal gratification, my own personal fitness journey, which in any area of life, we have an opportunity to be completely self-centered with it. Or is this too an area where love is my motive and where I am focused on what are the implications of for other people in my life when I make choices about you know, fitness? And I think we tend to compartmentalize a lot of aspects of our life. And for me, this brought everything all together. And it asked, it, it has caused me to start asking the question, what does love look like? Not so much what does my own personal freedom look like, but more what does it look like to love others? And I don't know if I necessarily have a, a black and white or concrete answer to that. Um, I don't, I certainly am not saying right now that I feel like the answer is, oh, you need to quit doing yoga, but it is a question worth wrestling with. Mm-hmm. And it is a, um, I think, an excellent point, which is that we we sometimes get hypersensitive to certain types of demonic contamination. You know, like, oh, I, I might be exposed to the influence of evil spirits. But the truth is we're most vulnerable in those areas of, you know, in our life where selfishness, unforgiveness, sin. I mean, these are things that open doorways. This is really where contamination happens and for me, I'm way more vulnerable to selfishness um, corrupting me in this realm of fitness and yoga than I am to demonic corruption. You know, it, quote unquote, Hindu spirits and principalities influencing me in a subversive kind of way. Yeah. So what's interesting about this is um, this conversation naturally forks. There's two forks here. One, Paul's talking about, well, how, how does this impact you? 
in participating in these these things. That's one issue that must be dealt with in an upfront way. Mm -hmm. The other issue is how is your behavior impacting someone else? And that raises a whole bunch of questions about, wow, could, could like anything we do cause a friend to stumble? And if the friend stumbles and doesn't think that that's the right thing for us to do, is it always the right thing to stop doing that thing because that person is stumbling? It appears to be what Paul is saying at the at the end of this, and yet we have to wrestle with this because these two forks intersect. We have to have integrity with ourselves, and we have to have integrity in the way that we love others. So let's just briefly explore these two forks in the road. Uh, as Paul, it, basically, to sum up what Paul's saying here is he's basically saying, you know, it's just food. <laughs> right. If and if it's food sacrificed to something that's uh, false, untrue, or uh, a demonic force that is under the authority of Jesus, big deal. Mm-hmm. We have Jesus. Jesus has authority over this this spiritual realm. There's nothing that we have to be afraid of mm-hmm. because, A, it's either a false god, or B, if it's a demonic entity, Jesus has authority over it, so no big deal for us, as long as we understand that. But the fact that you know that it's been sacrificed to idols— or the fact that we know, for instance, that yoga was born out of uh, Eastern religious context, the fact that we know that that's the case, how much does that make a difference in whether we participate in it or not uh, for ourselves and for the modeling that gives others? And you mentioned something I think that's uh, really important here. Um, When you have knowledge of something that's idolatrous or even evil, or is tainted by other spiritual forces, if we participate in that thing, are we, in fact, opening a door to that? Are we sort of inviting that influence to come in and mess mess with our life in some way? The, the, the idea that uh, all of the spiritual world operates by invitation, I think, is an important ground-level uh, ground thing to embrace. What I mean by that is... Jesus doesn't force himself on us. He responds to invitation. He responds to, uh, he comes into our life because we ask him to, not because he pounds down our door and says, I'm coming in anyway. It's all based on invitation. Our growth in him is all based on invitation. And strangely enough, the the dark spiritual world is also based on invitation. Um, If we invite some dark forces into our life or demonic forces into our life, um, either consciously or unconsciously, they'll come in. Um, and so if our life is based on invitation, and we definitely don't want to invite destructive forces into our life, then how do we determine when we are inviting and when we are not? How have you wrestled this out yourself with with kind of the decisions you've had to make? Well, I, I think I'm, I'm very comforted by the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life and confident in his ability to put conviction in my heart through sometimes the word of a friend, through his word, through his spoken word to me. Um, but to your point, Rick, though, it there's a lot of things that are just not black and white, and part of it comes from dependency. Um, one thing, though, that I love is the idea of asking the question, Jesus, am I opening up a doorway here? Or, Rick, maybe you could share just for a minute about the prayer that you led the kids through the other night at your house, Um, because I felt like that was just a very kind of 
practical, you know, not overly intense way of of acknowledging maybe I have invited things that I am not aware of and asking the Holy Spirit to kind of address those. Yeah. So uh, Steph and I were talking about uh, the small group I led earlier this week. It was sort of round two of focusing on this very thing we're talking about right now, the unseen spiritual world, and how there are two entities outside of ourself that are really at war over us, and and their their mission is to co-opt and leverage, not co-opt. In the case of Jesus, he's not co-opting our interior narrative. He wants to reveal our true nature. He wants to reveal us and restore us into the, the person that we were created to be. And so he does want to influence our interior narrative so that our interior narrative is true, that it's congruent with what is true. And we have an enemy who also wants to leverage our interior narrative, but for the purpose of destroying us. He wants to plant seeds of narrative destruction in our lives. A simple example would be, um, um, I'm never enough. I'm just never going to be enough. No matter what, I'm never going to be enough. That is a popular and uh, often used destructive seed that's planted into people's narrative, and the person, the entity that's planting it there is not Jesus, and it's not us. It comes from outside of us by these these demonic, dark spiritual forces that Jesus talks so much about who are intending to destroy us. So if you embrace the idea that that you're never going to be enough, then that can lead to self-destruction, which plays very much into the hands of the enemy of God. So in our uh, small group the other night, we were pursuing the Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and how Satan's strategy, what was Satan's strategy to try to leverage Jesus' own interior narrative, his own identity. That's what we were pursuing. And then the very last part of it was, how did Jesus combat that? And that was a fascinating, incredible conversation about how Jesus pushed back against Satan's desire to leverage his identity. At the very end of the group, we had a closing prayer, and I felt in the moment led to have them all close their eyes, and, and something unusual, I prayed, I'm the only one that prayed at the end, but what I felt led to do was to pray that um, all of us in agreement would close any doors that we've inadvertently or purposefully opened to demonic or dark spiritual forces in our life, that we would literally now, metaphorically, close those doors. So I did that on behalf of the whole group. I just said, all you have to do is agree with me as I pray, that we are closing all of those doors, we're locking them, and now we're saying to the enemy of God, yeah, I, I left that door open and I didn't even realize it, but I realize what I did now, I'm closing it, you have no right to come back in, go. And that's how we ended. Mm-hmm. And in my mind's eye, metaphorically, I said this in the prayer, I hear the sound of doors closing all around the group. And all that is, is recognizing that sometimes inadvertently, sometimes on purpose, we open doors to things. And you mentioned some some ways that we open doors are direct. So we could say things like uh, a seance, or a palm reading, or a psychic, or hosting a medium. These are all things that, if we agree to do them, they are directly inviting uh, contrary spiritual forces into relationship with us. If we do that, we have certainly opened a door. There's no doubt about it. I've prayed for many people over the years who have done this very thing and helped them to close that door again because they opened it wide to this direct influence. Then there are things that are you might call indirect invitations, things like 
maybe yoga or Eastern meditation, some people think that watching or reading Harry Potter is one of these indirect invitations. Or even, I, I know some Christian kids from pretty strict homes who believe that Lord of the Rings is off-limits too, because it has a wizard in the story. So that's, uh, of course, emblematic of a dark spiritual force, so you can't watch that. And you mentioned, Steph, even the Smurfs sometimes have been targeted mm-hmm. for, for this. So these are sort of indirect invitations, and the question then remains uh, exactly what you said, how do we discern what we're to do about these influences, and how do we discern what our uh, example or modeling is for those people around us, um, and how how much are we really at risk at being influenced when we open these doorways? And I think what you and I both agreed about is, if you've made a direct invitation to dark spiritual forces, like through a seance or a psychic reading or whatever, you should not be surprised that you've opened the door to an entity that wants to destroy you, and that door needs to get closed. So to me, that is black and white. Don't do those things. <laughs> do not directly invite contrary spiritual forces into your life ever. And if you do, go to someone who can pl- pray for you and, and stand with you to close that door permanently. Now, that the bigger issue is these indirect spiritual forces, and do any of these things put us at risk or sort of make us dirty? And uh, uh, maybe you could sum up, Steph, for you, mm-hmm. what you think about any mm-hmm. of those indirect spiritual forces. I think that in Christian community, there's just always a few good key things to make sure that you're doing so that you're not kind of out there on your own. One of them is don't isolate yourself. So be in Christian community. Be around people who love you, who who potentially might be able to see areas that you're exposing yourself that you are blind to. And be the kind of person that invites, we talk about inviting, that invites people to speak into our lives. That's not, we're not overly defensive. We don't have an attitude of self-righteousness or an attitude of, oh, I know everything. Kind of like what Paul says, you know, maybe you do have knowledge, but knowledge just puffs you up. It's not as strong as love. Love is humble. So I think that's one thing. Don't isolate. Invite people into your life and invite them to speak into your life. Stay in the Word. The Bible talks about how the Word of God is sharp, and it divides things. So if, you're, if you've got this murky area, the Bible is a powerful supernatural tool that divides between what is good and what is bad. And it trusts that it can have that influence in your life, and don't spend a lot of time apart from it. And one thing about that, too, is that um, one of the fundamental purposes of the Word, reading the Word, is to become intimately familiar with the voice of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in the Old Testament, uh, obviously, it's, it's the voice of the Trinity we're hearing. In the New Testament, we're often hearing directly the voice of Jesus, what His voice sounds like, what His inclinations are like, how He thinks, what His behavior is telling us. The more we are deep into this, the more we recognize his voice outside of the Bible. So you mentioned being guided and directed by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus in us. And the the more we are familiar with the voice of the Spirit and the behavior of Jesus and the behavior of the Trinity through the Word, the written Word, the more we can recognize that same voice and behavior um, outside of the Bible, when the Spirit is guiding and directing us in our everyday life. There's nothing in the Bible about yoga, for instance. There's not. So so it, you're at a loss unless 
you're being guided and directed by the Spirit, and you go to Him for that kind of guidance. So uh, the, the point here is to become very intimately familiar so that it not only um, opens you to the voice of the Spirit in your life, but you know the difference between the voice of the Spirit and other sort of influencing entities. One of the things that I think is, is fascinating um, when we think about how Paul dealt with all this stuff, now he's opened up this whole can of worms, uh, earlier in his letter to the Corinthians in, in chapter 2, is he says something that is maybe the, uh, I, maybe the orbital verse of my life, and this is where Paul is coming from. So as we move toward, okay, what do we, how do we live this out now in our everyday life? This is ground zero for how we live this out in our everyday life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I have determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I've determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That means that Paul's whole life is bent on knowing Jesus, and everything else falls into place if you get that first priority right. So these issues of, should I participate in yoga? Should I, uh, should I go to another church sometime to see what Hindus or Muslims believe? Am I exposing myself to something that I shouldn't when I do this? All of these are questions that we'll know the answer to or discern our way to the answer when our first priority is to know Jesus as our primary function in life. This is how Paul enters into all of these questions of everyday decisions. The, the first thing is to determine to know nothing but Jesus and Him crucified. Out of that comes discernment from the Spirit. So if Jesus is your home base in, in Paul's uh, mentality here, then we live with His authority, His calm, His discernment, and His spirit of conviction. This is what comes to us by abiding in Jesus. We get—let's just stop with these uh, three things here. We live with his authority. So authority is a crucial issue in all of this stuff. We mentioned it before. Jesus has all authority. Uh, the cross and resurrection have ripped Satan of any authority he once had. They're all gone now. And then Jesus hands it over to us and says, I've been given all authority, now I'm giving it to you. So when we operate in our, a base level, our home base is Jesus, we're operating with his authority in us. And we know that well, the battle's been won, and no one has more authority than Jesus does, so we can relax when it comes to issues of demonic forces and spiritual forces. We can relax, because Jesus has authority over those things. That produces calm. I think you pointed this out the other day, Steph, that when you know that you have authority, you're calm about it. Yeah. And the, the third thing is discernment. So maybe you could just talk briefly, what does it mean to discern your way through these decisions? How does one do that? How do you do that? Discernment's a difficult thing for me to describe because I feel like it is, um, it comes from a practice and a habit of an ongoing conversation with the Holy Spirit. So for me, discernment is just a sense of, the truth of something, kind of the layer beneath the surface um, where, and maybe you've experienced this before where you'll, you'll have a conversation with somebody and you'll just be able to discern. I, I hear what their words are saying, but I can discern what their heart is and it's different um, or the same. So for me, the discernment is just a, a mode of operating that is influenced by the Holy Spirit and guided by Him 
um, and then also informed by the Word. It's consistent with what the Bible will say. And and this guidance and this that comes, I think, through a posture of invitation and a posture of dependence. Yeah, a so, posture of, I don't know everything. Exactly. I don't want to pretend like I know everything. I could be wrong here. Which produces invitation. It says, yeah. Jesus, I need your help. I, I need your assistance. I need your guidance. That's inviting it. And then out of that comes a everyday way of dependence on him, that nothing's outside of that dependent mentality. Uh, I made the case in the last episode that I think uh, independence is the primary thing Jesus was going after in his teaching in the New Testament. He was trying to convince us by every means possible that attaching ourselves to him is the only way we can experience life. So uh, we get this discernment as we are inviting and dependent on him. It comes. It's a fruit of those of those things. And out of that comes a spirit of conviction, where you have a sense of conviction because the spirit within you is convicting you about something. And he can convict you about something that he's not convicting me about. And that's an important last thing to mention, that our our life of conviction is based on a one-on-one relationship with Jesus. There's obvious things that are sin. We all know them. But then there are fuzzy areas that really are based on conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And my experience is the Holy Spirit wins over time. If you love Jesus and the Holy Spirit's convicting you about something, it's just a matter of time before you're going down. (laughs) Eventually, you will acknowledge the clear conviction of the Spirit in your life. So, to close off here, we, in in an umbrella way, we never want to participate with Satan's mission or intent in the world. We don't. He's only come to kill, steal, and destroy. We don't want him destroying us or our friends. And one way that we can participate with Satan in his mission inadvertently is to elevate him, to make him more than he is. We don't make him more than he is. He doesn't have authority. Jesus does. But we do want to be aware of his intentions in the world, in ourselves and in our friends. I love, again, what the purpose of C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters. His purpose was to laugh at the enemy of God, uh, instead of uh, directly counter him and do battle with him, but to laugh at him. And Lewis believed that that was the best weapon against the false authority and deceit of Satan, to laugh at him, to expose his lies, to expose his arrogance, to expose his pride, and make fun of it, uh, because it stripped him of his scariness, Mm -hmm. I guess, in a way. So I encourage you to, if you've never read the Screwtape Letters, now would be a great time to read it. So next week we're going to discuss something that you've probably heard the phrase a lot in your Christian life. We're going to discuss what is spiritual warfare exactly. And Steph had a little teaser <laughs> as we were thinking forward to this. She said, um, yeah, I don't really like that kind of language, spiritual warfare, the battle language. So we're going to discuss is, is spiritual warfare in and of itself a good metaphor for what we are to do in living our lives? Is this battle imagery the right imagery for us to think about? Or is there something else, that some other kind of uh, metaphoric context that we should be pursuing? So, gang, if you want more information about this podcast or any of our other podcasts, go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You're going to be looking for Season 3, Episode 33. This is all brought to you by Lifetree, and and if you want even a broader array of resources and information about stuff, go to JesusCenterLife.com. We have plenty of resources there, books and 
devotionals and all kinds of things to help fuel um, the very thing that Paul said his life revolved around, determining to know nothing but Jesus. You'll find all that stuff at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hey, gang, we'll see you again next week.